Welcome to Perspectives with Dr. Vadisha Patel. Do you sometimes feel alone in life with personal and interpersonal struggles and challenges? We'll show you that you are not alone and that you can learn and thrive from your challenges and thereby live a healthy life. Now, here is your host, Dr. Vadisha Patel. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Perspectives. I'm your host, Dr. Vadisha Patel. In my practice, working as a licensed mental health therapist, I see many families who struggle with parenting challenges. These families have children of all ages, and there are some common themes in the issues that they present with. I find parents struggling with managing their children's behavior, with motivational issues, with addictions to screens and social media, and of course, the stress and anxiety around performance in school and getting into college. These parents are all looking for tools and techniques to help their children succeed in today's world. So today, I've invited a guest who works with children on a regular basis and has the perspective of a parent as well. She actually presents us with a concept that some of you may cringe at, the gift of failure. Yes, failure is not a bad thing. It can sometimes be the best opportunity we give our children. Jessica Leahy is a teacher, writer, and mom. She writes about education, parenting, and child welfare for the Atlantic, Vermont Public Radio, the Washington Post, and the New York Times. And she's the author of the New York Times bestselling book, The Gift of Failure, How the Best Parents Learn to Let Go So Their Children Can Succeed. She's a member of the Amazon Studios Thought Leader Board and wrote the educational curriculum for Amazon Kids, The Stinky and Dirty Show. And she also has a JD with a concentration in juvenile and educational law and lives in Vermont. Jessica teaches high school English at a drug and alcohol rehab for adolescents and is currently working on a new book, which is due to be released in 2021. And that is called The Addiction Inoculation, Raising Healthy Kids in a Culture of Dependence. So thank you, Jess, for taking the time away from your writing to join me oh, today on Perspectives. You're so welcome. <laughs> you're so welcome. I actually stopped at a really good place, and I'm just getting ready to send another chapter off to my agent. So I'm, I'm very, I'm in a very happy place today. Well, well, wonderful. I'm glad. <laughs> so, and with that, I really would like to hear your perspective on how in the world have we gotten here? It just feels like we're so caught up as individuals and parents and families in success and everybody is trying to just amp up to the next level um, to get the next best thing and is just constantly striving for this so there's it feels like there's no room left to enjoy what's in front of us and some of that we see in the news today with the college admissions process and all the um, stories that are coming out about what lengths people are going to to get their children into college and um, the levels which of stress is part and anxiety. Of the, which I think is part of the problem, too. I mean, so, you know, it's it's really been the perfect storm of a couple of different things. Um, there's a whole chapter in the book about sort of how we got here. And, and the short story is that we're having fewer kids. We're having them later in life. We're having them after more education or after having been out in the workforce for a long, longer period of time. Mm-hmm. Um you know, those fewer kids are become, you know, more precious and more expensive and, you know, in terms of the emotional weight. And on top of that, on top of feeling like, oh, my gosh, you know, these two, everything has to be perfect for these two or one kids. Um, 
On top of that, we have the media, as you mentioned, that is, it's a constant barrage, not only of information that, you know, in the best of circumstances can be really healthy. If there's, you know, a bad flu year and I need to be reminded to get my flu shot, then great, then that's fantastic. But if the media is concentrating on the things that are, um, you know, research shows that we're, we're more moved to respond when something is emotionally provocative for us. And so when the media comes out with these reports of things that have happened to one kid, maybe two kids across the country, and we then focus on those things as being an immediate and desperate threat for our (laughs) own children. So we tend to live in these emergencies. So, you know, it's not just that, you know, the whole demographics of children and how many we're having and and all that sort of stuff and when we're having them, but it also has to do with this constant media cycle of threat and messages of threat and how much threat we have to protect our children from and how hard it is to get them to the place we need them to get. And my concern is, you know, with Varsity Blues, the whole academic, uh, the whole college cheating scandal. Now, you know, it, I thought it would be great at first because we'd say, oh, you know, man, look how bad that is. We can't right. go there. But unfortunately, one of the effects it's had in talking to parents is that they can say, well, I'm not doing that. <laughs> so <laughs> at least I'm not doing that. So really, all this other stuff I'm doing is is totally normal, right? So it's shifted our line in the sand for what is considered reasonable <laughs> parenting maneuvering um, to a really bizarre place. So it, it really, you can't point out any one thing. Yeah, it's, it's, um, it's frustrating, though, because parents will come to me in my practice and say, you know, I, I think you talk about it in your book as well. You know, my child was doing so well in school. And now all of a sudden they've lost interest. And this Mm -hmm. could be over the course of a few months or a school year. Um, What's wrong with them? Is it, is it ADHD? Is it depression? (laughs) Is it, um, you know, what is it? They're so bright and I know they're capable and they won't do it. Um, This motivation thing. Can you talk a little (laughs) bit about that? (laughs) Yeah. So motivation is a tricky one when it comes to adolescence. And I think, you know, as you know, adolescent brains are not like adult brains. They are very, very different. Um, Adolescents really, we're not done uh, building the brains that we will need for all that adulting stuff until we're in our early to mid 20s. So you know, all of that stuff that we want to see in kids. And and I talk a lot about middle school because that's frankly where my heart lies. I, I was a middle school teacher for a very long period of time. And I just, I love them so much. It's, um, it's, you know, it's just such a treat to get to teach them. But unfortunately, middle school is this big setup where we're asking lots of things from kids who are not close to cognitively or neurologically capable of being able to do. And so we we tend to see these people getting bigger and bigger and looking more and more like adults. And so our expectation is that their brains must work like adult brains, but they just don't. They're functioning from those emotional centers. They are suddenly, their hormones are kicking in and they're noticing that, oh my gosh, everybody's staring at me all the time. And oh my gosh, look, there are those people I'm attracted to over there. And, you know, all those social factors are happening. And it can be really, really hard for them to focus on, you know, academics because, from a brain standpoint where adolescence is concerned, um, adolescents have lower baseline levels of dopamine than adults do. So day-to-day life can seem pretty boring. (laughs) And the thing about about adolescence also is that the exciting things, the crushes and the, um, 
you know, anything exciting can cause a burst of dopamine and their response to it is so much more acute. So they're constantly looking for the next exciting thing and math homework's just not exciting. <laughs> it's just not as much as we would like it to be. And some teachers are really taking that to heart and, you know, finding ways to make learning more relevant um, and all of that sort of stuff. But in the meantime, uh, get, cut your adolescent to break. Their their brains just don't work like ours do. And, and starting there and learning about that is a really great first step. So from there, you, you, you talk a lot about intrinsic motivation mm-hmm. and yep. how to motivate our children from any age, and you do talk about it from a young age on Mm -hmm. up. Can you talk about intrinsic motivation a little bit? Yeah, I I often ask parents to think about their kid before they went off to preschool or kindergarten and and how interested they were in just learning about their environment on a moment-to-moment basis. And then realizing that... um, we kind of screw that up. Uh, we, when I say we, I mean parents and teachers and and society also. Um, kids get the message as soon as they go off to school that um, learning isn't about exploration. It's about a grade or a point or a score or, you know, there's suddenly homework or there's, and by the way, we should not be giving any kids in elementary school homework. Um all of a sudden, it's about stakes, and it's about um, obligatory things, not pleasurable things. And as anyone who's ever achieved that that wonderful flow state that Mihai Csikszentmihalyi talk, talks about in flow where you're doing something because you just love it and it's stimulating and interesting and holding your attention because it's just the right level of difficult. We take that away from kids because we then make all learning about the sticker charts or the grade or the big smiley face on top of the paper that, you know, signals approval. Um, and unfortunately, putting all of our um, our eggs on those extrinsic motivators of grades and points and scores and trophies and smiley faces and sticker charts undermines our kids' interest in learning over the long term. So the more we rely on those extrinsic motivators, the less likely they are to be engaged in the learning for the sake of the learning. And there's there's there are very sort of big picture things we can do to change that and shift them over to being more intrinsically motivated. Uh-huh. But in the meantime... And I'm not saying we can never use grades or points or scores or smiley faces or sticker charts. There are times <laughs> when we can use those things. But right now, from what I'm seeing both with students and talking to parents, and I talk to hundreds of thousands of students every year, um, right now we're exclusively relying on the extrinsic motivators to try to get kids to do what we want them to do. And those don't work over the long term. There's 40 years of really good research that shows that. So how, so how do we shift back and how, and I would say from first, from a parent's perspective, Mm -hmm. how can parents shift back to that intrinsic motivation? It start at home is the, you know, great place to start because it's this place where we can put our money where our mouth is, model for them, show them that what we really care about is the learning and not just the grades. And I, I get how loaded grades are. They come home, you know, they have a, a an F and we, you know, we're silent. We don't know what to do with that. And um, they get an A and we flip out and we, you know, put it on the refrigerator and frame it and put it on Instagram. And, and that <laughs> difference in our response tells them that no matter what we say about how much we value learning, what we really care about are the grades. So if we as parents can start talking more about the process 
and less about the product, more about the process of learning. So when the kid comes home with that A or that D, you say to them, huh, interesting. So what did you do to get that grade? What are you going to do next time? You're going to leave behind. What are you going to do instead? Oh, you, your friend got an A and you got an F. Well, what did your friend do that you didn't do? Or what did you do that your friend didn't do? That is really, that's all about support um, for your kid, you know, without any thought for, you know, oh, I have to love them less because they have a low grade or more if they have a high grade. And I know we don't do that on purpose, but when I go out and I talk to kids and I ask them very specifically, I ask whole auditoriums full of kids to close their eyes so they don't feel embarrassed. And then I ask them to raise their hands if they really and truly believe deep in their hearts that their parents love them more when they get high grades and less when they get low grades. And in middle school, about 80% of the kids raise their hand and in high school about 90% of the kids raise their hand. So (laughs) they believe we love them more when we bring home those A's they bring home those A's and we believe that they believe that we love them less um, when they bring home the low stuff. So no matter what we say to them, you know, we like to say, oh, what I really care about is the learning. Well, did you learn? Because that's what I really care about. What they're seeing from us, what they're reading from our actions is that we really do care about the grades more. So focus more on the process and less on that product. You don't have to ignore it completely, but just shift your focus just a little bit to talk about the process more. Right. That That's actually great advice. And it's so much harder to do than mm-hmm. it is yeah. to describe because I right. know I had experiences with, with my own children where I would try and focus on the process and they would look at me and they would say, but you're really not happy, are you? And <laughs> it, there was nothing I could do to express to them that I was perfectly happy. I was not I wasn't bothered. I was more concerned with what they had or hadn't done. Mm-hmm. But I think I, in that regard, I also think that kids obviously talk to each other and they mm-hmm. feed off of each other and their friends' experiences as well. Right. Which is, uh, which is, and switching over to the teacher side of me, um, one of the reasons I'm so thrilled that something called standards-based grading is catching on in this country, which is instead of getting a report card with an A through F grade on it, which really from a parent perspective does not give me much information. Like if I know my kid has a B in English, I don't know what that means. I don't know what he knows or what he doesn't know. And from a teaching perspective, I teach a lot of really highly mobile kids, mostly because they've been in foster care or they're they've kids of military parents. And when I see their grades and I say, oh, okay, well, you have a B in English. I have no idea from a teaching perspective where to start. What does this kid know? So a a standards-based report card really just lists, like, for example, from the Common Core state standards, although it doesn't have to be those, what skills should this kid know in this class and has he or she mastered them? And that's really valuable information and takes all of the emphasis off of the end product and puts all the emphasis back on the learning. Has the learning happened? So I think that, you know, it's really, really hard to do, but I think when you start focusing on that and sort of take a breath and remind yourself that it's really important to focus on that, especially for kids who are, perfectionists, especially for kids who are highly anxious. And increasingly, I'm hearing more and more how just how anxious kids are. And a lot of that has to do with the fact that they're so tied up in those products that they are incapable of focusing on the process. So the more we drag the conversation back to process, the better. Right. So the standard based grading, is that is that becoming, um, is it throughout the U.S. or is it? Mm-hmm. 
Um, well, you know, it's really in isolated places, and there are various forms of it. Um, there's a mastery.org has this big push right now with mostly with elite New England private schools to create mastery portfolios instead of grades. Um, lots of schools across the country, public and private, are doing the switch to standards-based grading or mastery-based grading. It goes under a bunch of different names. Um, in fact, we moved just last year, and I specifically we specifically chose to purchase a house within a district where the school had moved away from grades and towards standards-based grading. So now my child, my younger child, does not get grades. He gets um, a report card listing how well he's, uh, how he's doing on this mastery scale. And that's really valuable information for me because I can look and say, oh, look, that skill did not happen this year. How can I shore that up for him? Or how can we you know, seek out ways to make that happen. So yeah, right. it's, it's, it is spreading. It's spreading slowly. Um, I am heartened by the rapidity with which I'm seeing it expand, expand though. And I get invited to a lot of schools to talk, <laughs> to, to meet with parents, to talk parents through the little hangover they get from not seeing grades on the report card. Cause it's really so, hard as, as an emotional switch. So I want to come back to that, but we're going yeah. to go to a short commercial break. Sure. So please stay tuned. We're talking to Jessica Leahy and we will be right back to perspectives. Your life, your health, your network. You're listening to Voice America Health & Wellness. Are you ready to live to 100? Join Dr. Joe Casciani and his program that shows us that age is just a number. You can age with fresh and inspiring perspectives, whether it's staying physically fit or keeping mentally fit. With great stories, plenty of advice about successful aging, and brighter outlooks, you just might join those who are living to 100. The Living to 100 Club is broadcast live every Friday at 2 p.m. Pacific Time and 5 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. Do you feel that you aren't at your best when it comes to your personal health? Even if your doctor gives you a clean bill of health and says everything is in working order, perhaps you aren't feeling at the top of your game. Dr. Rebecca Risk overcame pain and fatigue despite all tests to the contrary. Learn how she put her health back on track and how you can too on Falling Through the Cracks. Live every Monday at 9 a.m. Pacific Time, 12 noon Eastern Time on Voice America Health & Wellness. Have you had a chance to check out Voice America's online magazine and blog? If you love our hosts and shows, check out articles that give an even deeper perspective, plus topics about health and fitness, movie reviews, philosophy, business tips and tactics, spirituality, positive thought, current events, and even more about your favorite host. It's just a click away at blog.voiceamerica.com. That's blog.voiceamerica.com. The Voice America Press Blog. All access, all the time. Step into a healthier you. Voice America Health & Wellness. You are tuned into Perspectives with Dr. Vadisha Patel. If you would like to reach the show today, please call into 1-866-472-5792. That's 1-866-472-5792. You may also send an email directly to Dr. Patel at drv4kids at yahoo.com. That's Dr. V, the number four, kids at yahoo.com. 
Now, back to Perspectives. Welcome back to Perspectives. I'm your host, Dr. Vidisha Patel, and I'm in conversation with Jessica Leahy, teacher, writer, and mother. And we've been talking or starting the conversation about the role that failure plays in the lives of our children and probably in all of us, but at this point in our children. So before the break, um, Jess, we were we were talking about the standard-based grading. I think that's mm-hmm. how you called it. Um and I find it fascinating because where I live in Florida, we have a, a college, a four-year college that does not have grades and mm-hmm. it attracts a certain type of student. Um, I think it puts more work on the professors at the college level because they have to write a, a qualitative assessment of the student. Right. But I think it is far more beneficial for the student in terms of their learning um, mm-hmm. Is that it can be it can be problematic though, as you point out. Uh, um, uh, my husband went to medical school with someone who had graduated from Evergreen in Washington State, and they don't do grades there. And she was rejected outright from the medical school, and she had to work a little bit harder to go back to them and say, "No, wait, <laughs> let me explain how this works." And this was years ago, so really, this was back, you know, when this first started. So it's it's definitely become something that um, colleges, in particular, are getting more used to and. And more um, able to deal with. And um, so I, I think that's going to get easier as we go along. Well, I, I hope so, because I think I think you're right. I think that as children, they have a better understanding of what they are able to do and what they're not or what they where they've achieved mm-hmm. or where they need to work. And as parents, we can also see that. But right now, it's it's like a tension between merging the grading systems in the schools versus these qualitative assessments that are in other schools. And how do mm-hmm. you, so you either, if some parents I know feel like they have to choose one line of education for their child from kindergarten on um, because it's hard to switch say for high school to mm-hmm. a IB program or something. Well, uh, actually that what's interesting is that the, the, push towards standards-based grading is easier to do in elementary and then moving into middle school. Um, I've seen lots of middle schools switch over as as a before rolling it out to the high school. And if you do it it, it you you can move back and forth um, in entire districts. I just spoke a couple of years ago in a school district in Indiana where they were just transitioning the middle school over to standards-based grading from grades and from A through F grades. And um, while it was a little bit bumpy, um, they were doing it as a system and the entire district sort of knew how that was going to go and, and had expectations and had been trained. Increasingly, as it's becoming more popular, it really is becoming easier for um, schools to figure out what, what those grades mean. That's, that's great to know. I want to shift now to another term that you use in your book, The Gift of Failure, called autonomy supportive parenting. Mm-hmm. Can you talk to us about that and explain what that means and, and what it looks like? <laughs> Sure. And really quickly, I just want to mention that, um, you know, while I would have loved to have written Gift of Failure from like this utopia perspective of here's what the education system <laughs> should look like if I was queen, that's not what it is. It, it The Gift of Failure is very much based on, okay, well, grades for the most part, A through F grades are what we've got. So here's some ways to, you know, focus on the learning and not on the grades. So I just wanted to make sure that people don't think that the entire book is about this la-la land where everything is perfect and there are no grades. Oh, but that is ab- not the case. <laughs> no, absolutely not. And actually, I'm, I love the way you have specific things that 
parents can do or try for kids at all ages. So, and I would like to get into some of that as well. Um, well, and I wrote the book while I was doing great, while I was having to give grades. So as a, <laughs> as a teacher, you know, I have to sort of balance the, the parent side of my head and the teacher side of my head. So <laughs> that I'm sure that's difficult because you see both sides. And if you're children are at about the age that you're of the children you're teaching, I'm sure it gets even more complicated. Although that was the basis of your coming up with the coming to an understanding of this, wasn't it? It really was. I mean, I think, uh, and I apologize for for taking us off in a new tangent, but it absolutely was. My students were so obsessed with the grades and points and scores that um, they were increasingly frightened of things like rough drafts. (laughs) Writing rough drafts all of a sudden became this just tortuous, like they would freeze up because they, they were so desperate to have even their first attempts at anything look like perfection, like honey had flowed from their pen and it was just beautiful and perfect and shining. And that is not (laughs) how writing (laughs) happens. In fact, I talk to my students a lot about my disastrous first drafts. In fact, they're often, you know, I, I talk a lot about my failures with my students and my kids because that's I can't possibly expect them to be brave um, intellectually, emotionally, unless they see me doing the same. So, yeah, those students that and luckily the students that I wrote about at the time when I was writing Gift of Failure, many of them have have had to find their own ways to reengage with their education because they knew that um, they knew that they were becoming unhealthily obsessed with the points and the scores and the grades and all of that sort of stuff. And that, you know, the messages that they were getting that if they just get into X college, everything will be great. And that's not how it works. Actually, learning often begins for many students once they've achieved that next step. And so, you know, not having the emotional wherewithal to deal with frustration was another um, big effect of being so helped all the time by their parents and, and not being able to deal with frustration works re- works so much against learning because some of the most valuable tools I have as a teacher, I need students to be able to get frustrated and push through even when the learning is a little bit challenging. That's where some of the best learning happens. So if I have a kid who can't be frustrated because they have been overparented, they have been handed answers, they have been told how to do things, which is sort of called directive parenting, which is the opposite of autonomy, supportive parenting, right. um, those kids require a lot of weaning to get them back to the point where they can learn again. Autonomy supportive parenting to get back to your question is not abandoning kids. It's not, you know, bye, you know, fend <laughs> for yourselves. There's frozen lasagna in the freezer. Um it's it's being there, being supportive, but being supportive of the process of learning, um supporting them when they uh, supporting their ability to make some decisions for themselves. Supporting autonomy really is kind of like independence but has more to do with um control of the details. And I make the analogy that when your toddler is little and it's cold outside, you mm-hmm. don't say, would you like to wear a hat? <laughs> you don't cede all control. You say, right. it is cold. Would you like to wear the red hat or the blue hat? And suddenly there's this feeling of choice and, oh, you know, buy-in. I get to choose the red hat. That is my choice. Therefore, I own it and I will put on the red hat. And, you know, I hate to say it, but often teenagers are just <laughs> like big toddlers. So the more we can give them choice and autonomy and then support them as they use those choices, figure out whether they're good choices or bad choices, and help guide them toward 
figuring out how to do better next time, figuring out what went wrong, figuring out what went right, what to bring forward with them into the next iteration. That's autonomy supportive parenting. Well, and the comment you made about adolescents, teenagers being sort of like toddlers in, in jest, it, it is actually a reality. I've done a lot of work with adolescents mm-hmm. and um, they're doing the same things, but at a different level. So right. there's it, the toddler is learning how to walk and taking two steps and then turning around to look and make sure you're there while your adolescent is pushing their own boundaries and still turning around to make sure that, that you're there and it's okay. Um, and so that this concept, I think, of giving choices, but I guess giving controlled choices mm-hmm. exactly. um, is is very helpful and, it, and the buy-in is also helpful. But the other point you make is also um, that you've talked about before is modeling and... Mm-hmm modeling that behavior. So there was a story that I was really touched by in your book because it really hit home um, about your having your your son, I think, left his homework <laughs> at yeah. home yeah. and your experience with that. I was wondering if you'd be willing to share that story. <laughs> sure. So my younger son, who, by the way, now is a a teenager. He's doing great. <laughs> He's doing great. <laughs> he was, uh, he was, um, an organizational disaster. Uh, really, executive function-wise, you know, um, you know, the frontal lobe handles your executive function, your planning, your organization, all that kind of stuff. And he was just a late bloomer in that area. And, um, you know, I, as a teacher, a middle school teacher, I should know this stuff. I know how to handle this stuff, right? But as a parent, I don't know. I had some kind of like parenting blinders on, and and it was really hard for me to step back and let him make those mistakes. So I come downstairs. We've been working really hard on um, on getting his homework off to school with him, like helping him come up with ways to remember it. And he had left his homework on the on the table. And I, we were at a point where teachers were starting to get angry. Um, there were starting to be real consequences for his not figuring out how to remember to get his homework turned in. And um, you know, luckily. Uh, Luckily, I was writing the book at the time, and, and I knew that I could not take that homework to school for him, um, even though I had to be at the school anyway for something else. And it, it was torture not taking the homework, because at that point, he was starting to get teased by other kids. The teachers were mad. He was going to have to stay in from recess, which is something I really don't believe in, because I think, you know, all kids need recess. They need to move. Um, it was really tempting for me to take that homework in, and I didn't. And that day ended up being a huge turning point for him, because his teacher did get upset with him. Is a wonderful man, his fourth grade teacher, Mr. Dano. I owe so much to him. Mr. Dano got upset with him and, and said, um, you know, over recess, you're going to have to do some work on this homework. But they also started to strategize. He said, look, you know, Finn, this has been going on for too long. You're going to have to come up with a way so that tomorrow you can remember the homework so that you can do better next time. What's your strategy going to be? And you can't go out and play with your friends until you've come up with a strategy. And he came up with a strategy, which is the same strategy he uses to this day, which is a checklist. And it's, you know, if I had taken that homework, all of those things wouldn't have happened. Having to talk to an adult, having to make that checklist, none of that strategizing would have happened. And so it was it was a huge moment and it, it continues to be a huge moment for us. That's a that's a great story. I used to volunteer in the front office of my children's school and <laughs> I can't tell you how many parents would come scrambling in after the bell rang with 
various homework assignments or classes or yeah. sports shoes or all sorts of things. Um, well, and, and when administrators ask me, what is the quickest way for us to back parents up in these uh, in these efforts to be more autonomy supportive and help their kids become more competent? And I say, oh, that's easy. Send out a message to the entire school community that there will be no longer, because you are so interested in supporting students and becoming better and more competent, there will no longer be any dropping forgotten items off after first bell, period. And not only does that help kids learn how to cope, it learns how to, helps them learn how to you know, do better next time. It's also equitable. Um, if you think about who can afford or who is able to bring items in after first bell, it's right. certainly not parents taking public transportation. And it's not um, the parents who are doing shift work. So um, that's a great first step. No stuff can come in after first bell is my favorite (laughs) new rule for uh, schools to implement. Well, I think that's a great idea. What I find also, though, and we can talk a little bit about it briefly now and come back to it after the break, but is this concept that parents feel entitled, that they feel that, yes, that is the rule, but Mm -hmm. But not for me. I will find a way or I will talk to the teacher or I will show up at the door anyway. Um, And how do you get around that? (laughs) It it requires backup from administration and requires that it really is the school climate. Um, I have had to gently say thank you. That's so nice of you to bring it. um, And you're welcome to, you know, put it in his locker, but I'm not accepting that for credit. And there have been times actually... exceptions to this rule, even for myself, um, like before a test, when my kid has had, my kid had these formative assessments and getting ready to take this test, see how much he knew and what he did and didn't know. Um, it was the day before the test. And so my son forgot the review sheet um, and I scanned it and I emailed it to the teacher and I said, look, you are not to give my kid any credit, but because this information is important for you to know how much my kid does and doesn't know ahead of the test, I'm giving this to you for your information, but do not give my kid credit for having turned this in. Um, so as a teacher, you know, homework is for information. So it, there have right. been times that I have done exceptions, but definitely not um, to do an end run around a rule or to make an exception for my own kid. And I think that's part of the problem we've run into is that we're thinking so much about our own child that we tend to forget that the classroom is a community that needs to be supported as a whole. Right. That's a great point. So we're going to head for a short commercial break now, so don't go away. We'll be right back to talk some more about how we can be better parents by gifting our children with the opportunity for failure. Opinions, options, answers. You're listening to Voice America Health & Wellness. Frankly Speaking About Cancer is a program designed to empower survivors and their caregivers to deal with the social and emotional challenges of cancer. The show will invite physicians, researchers, nurses, social workers, patients, and caregivers to share their advice on how to live a better life with cancer. Join host Kim Tibaldo, President and CEO of the Cancer Support Community, Tuesday afternoons at 1 p.m. Pacific Time and 4 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Health and Wellness Network. Can grief be good for you? Absolutely. It gets your attention, helping you evaluate your choices and relationships. Your losses define who you are. Tune in each week for Good Grief with host Cheryl Jones. 
Our show features those who have made incredible transformations by grieving their losses. You'll learn how to find your courage and strength. You'll discover the important things in your life and how to let go of things that are less important. Good Grief airs live Wednesdays at 2 p.m. Pacific Time, 5 p.m. Eastern on Voice America Health and Wellness. Your favorite Voice America Talk Radio Network shows and hosts are in your car, outdoors, and wherever you need them to be. Listen anywhere. Get our mobile app for iPhone, BlackBerry, or Android at the Apple iTunes App Store, BlackBerry App World, or Android Market. Steps to a healthier you. Voice America Health and Wellness. You are tuned into Perspectives with Dr. Vadisha Patel. If you would like to reach the show today, please call into 1 866 472 5792. That's 1 866 472 5792. You may also send an email directly to Dr. Patel at drv4kids at yahoo.com. That's Dr. V, the number 4, kids at yahoo.com. Now, back to Perspectives. Welcome back to the last segment of our show today. You're listening to Perspectives. I'm your host, Dr. Vidisha Patel. Please get in touch with me via email at drvforkids at yahoo.com with any questions or comments. I would love to hear from you. I'm here with Jessica Leahy discussing her book on the gift of failure. And we were talking about what parents can do to be more um, supportive of their children and giving them the opportunity to learn from their mistakes. Um, so in that we were, it sounds like we need buy-in not only from the parents in this, but we need buy-in from teachers and administration as well. Yeah. I mean, that's the, one of the nice things that I get to do and go or out speaking. I'll often go to a school and I'll speak to the kids during the day and the faculty in the afternoon and the parents in the evening to sort of get everyone on the same vocabulary, um, make sure that we all understand, everyone understands what, that the formula for getting kids intrinsically motivated, which is what teachers want. It's what parents want. It's what really, it's also what the kids want. They want to be interested in school. They don't want to be bored all day long. Right. So if we can get everyone understanding that the ingredients for that are autonomy, helping kids feel more competent and not just confident. Unfortunately, we're really good at that whole confidence thing because the self-esteem movement told us that we were supposed to tell our kids constantly how wonderful they are as if that's going to somehow inoculate them against, you know, feeling bad about themselves. And that's not how self-esteem works. Um, So autonomy, competence. And then the last part of that is, um, is connection. And this is all Edward DC from his book, um, Why We Do What We Do, The Science of Self-Motivation. In order to get kids intrinsically motivated to learn, we need those three things. And, um, you know, connection means something slightly different for parents than it does for teachers. But for parents, it's actually pretty simple. It comes down to two things. Number one, we have to love the kids we have, not the kids we wish we had. Right. Because they know, they know when we don't see them, when we don't hear them, when we are expecting, you know, them to be their brother or their sister or us when they were our age. So love the kids we have, not the kids we wish we had. And we can't just love them based on their performance. And, you know, 
I would say I would never in a million years do that, except I do it all the time because my kids bring home their report cards and I'm like, Wee-hoo, look at that. Let's call your grandparents. Um, and so we model for them the exact opposite of what we are supposed to convey. Um, right. And those three things, you know, if we keep those three things in mind, the autonomy, the competence and making sure that our kids love them no matter what, not based on their performance, not based on the fact that they're like their brother, then I think we're we're pretty good shape. We can screw up a lot of other things as long as we don't screw up, you know, making sure our kids love them for who they are. Well, and with that, I would also add, I find a lot of parents living their lives through their children. So <laughs> wanting their kids yeah. to do things that either they did or that they right. could never do. Um, and their kids know it. that. They know when it's happening. And so when I um, when I speak at schools, one of the things I do before I leave is I give all of the kids my direct email address. And I tell them to email me before I speak to their parents that evening with anything they want me to tell their parents. The number one thing I get is, I am not my brother. I am not my sister. I am not a redo for my parents. <laughs> And the redo thing or the do-over thing is, I hear it constantly. I hear it at every single school I go to, and I hear it multiple times. So um, they know. They know when that's our agenda, and uh, they hate it. (laughs) They really do. It really upsets them. Well, I mean, it's basically taking away the individuality of of the person. It's it's your child, but they're still a person, and they, they have a little bit they, they're their own unique self. And I think that the best way that we as parents can raise them or we as therapists can encourage parents to raise them is to allow children to grow into whoever it is they are. Yeah. Um, and so this is where this this praise, the whole issue of praise as well, because we are taught to constantly praise our kids, but it, it's not helpful, is it? I mean, you... It, if it's not right, it's not right. If it's not well, it, you know, it depends on what you're doing. I mean, unfortunately, a lot of people point to you know Carol Dweck's fixed and growth mindset and say, you know, oh, I read an article on that, and they say she says that you're supposed to only praise your kids for effort and never tell them they're smart, which is such an unbelievably gross oversimplification of the book Mindset, which is a brilliant book, and everyone should read it, not just because of kids, but because it it informs us about our own learning. Right. Um, uh, you know, praise is a really interesting thing. I mean, the thing that teachers are tend to be um, fairly well-versed in is that praise has to be specific. Um, telling mm-hmm. kids good job means is, is worse than saying nothing. It means nothing. Good job means absolutely nothing. Um, what I tell parents to do a lot is to be specific in their praise, to uh-huh. um, be specific about how the, like, for example, if I see my kid struggling with homework and he's really working hard, what I'm going to say to him is not, oh, you got that right. What I would say to him is, you know, I'm really proud of you because I could tell that that was really frustrating for you. And you know what? A year ago, you would have given up on that. Um, That kind of praise is all about process. Um, The other thing that's really important is that we're not just that we're making the praise specific, but that we're attempting to keep it personal to them, specific to what it is they're doing and specific to the process. Um, I think a lot of what we tend to do is pick out the end result and praise that. Um, It's also important to understand that there are um, gender differences in Mm -hmm. these, of course, anytime we bring up gender differences, I have to put the caveat that this is, you know, again, a huge generalization. If you read the work of Lisa Damore or Rachel Simmons, they talk a lot about the fact that 
girls tend to hear, you know, to, to view a mistake they've made as not something that can be outside of them, but something they are. I am a failure. Not right. this paper got an F, but I am a failure. And the worst part of that is that it's when combined with this other thing that girls have a tendency to do, which is to not be able to look at the evidence of their own success and internalize that. So they're far more um, interested, they're far more likely to internalize their failures and less likely to look at evidence of their success and own it. They're more likely to say something like, you know, oh, I had a good lab partner or, oh, I got lucky um, than to say, oh, no, I really was competent and cap- capable there. Um, whereas boys are a little bit better at sort of putting that failure over there and saying, you know, oh, look, I failed at that thing. I'm totally cool, but I failed at that thing. <laughs> so remembering those gender differences is important to me as a teacher. I have to sort of pay attention to to that. Um, But when it comes to the praise, you know, as long as we're staying away from anything that is predicated on an output, predicated on a result, then I I think we're in fairly good shape. And one of the best things that I tend to tell parents, especially really little kids, I think, Uh one of the things that I think is helpful is when they come to you and they say, what do you think of my picture? One of the best things we can say to them is, well, what do you think of your picture? Because they really do need to create their own internal locus of quality and um, being able to assess their own work. You want a kid to be able to say, you know what, I kind of whiffed that one or, oh, I was coasting. I can do better than that. But if they're looking to us to be their barometer for success or for quality, then they're less able to develop that. And I think it's important to point out at this point, probably that making the change is important and how we parent our children, but that recognizing it's not going to happen overnight, that this is, you know, and, <laughs> yeah. and I think obviously the older your child is when you're making the shift, the longer it would probably take. Yes, but on the other hand, older kids are much better at talking to you about these things. And so if I go to my older kid and say, you know what, sweetie, I I have been underestimating you and I'm really sorry. I have made a mistake and I learned something and I want to do better, which is, of course, exactly what we're asking them to do, which is to reflect on their mistakes and learn from them. So if we can model that, yay. Um, So you go to your kid and you say, look, sweetie, I, I read this book or I went and heard this person speak and I, I learned some stuff and I think I've been underestimating you. And so from here on out, Uh, We're going to talk about the ways that I'm going to give you more autonomy and I'm going to help you feel more competent. And I want to make sure that you understand that I love you no matter what. Um, Those pulling the rug out from under a kid and suddenly, you know, pulling out all of the scaffolding you've been carefully putting up under your kid for years and years is going to be challenging and and confusing. But if you have a conversation with an older kid, you can actually shortcut through a lot of the uh, a lot of the time that it takes because they actually get what you're saying, and kind of appreciate your honesty um, for copying to your mistakes. Right, because that's also, as the, as your kids get older, they, they notice what you're good at and what you're not good at as parents, whether they say that to you or not. So I think as a parent, when right. you can come to them first and show what you've recognized about yourself, I think it probably validates their sense of um, perspective and their intuition and their thought process as well. Well, um, I wish parents could hear what the students talk to me about. They totally are on to us. They know we're not perfect. They know what we're good at. We, they know what we're bad at. Um, it's really eye-opening <laughs> to, <laughs> to give my email out to hundreds of thousands of kids and ask them to get back to me about things they would like for their parents to know. 
I bet. Wow. <laughs> um, <laughs> so one arena where I see a lot of this happening with parents not necessarily giving their children autonomy is the sports arena and this mm-hmm. desire for kids or for parents, I should say, to have their kids involved in some sport and become the best at it. And of course, if you're the best, there's only you. There can't, you know, everybody can't <laughs> be the best. Um, so what are your thoughts on that? And You know, that- it was really interesting writing that chapter because at the time I didn't, I wasn't a sports parent. That didn't come until later for me. Um, I didn't have kids who did a lot of, so they did, you know, community little league and, you know, our little small town, New Hampshire um, soccer teams and things like that. But I didn't have a serious athlete until um, high school. And it's been a real education for me. Um, sports are fantastic. I think sports can, there are a lot of fantastic, wonderful, protective things sports can do. You know, people who are involved in sports are less likely to uh, use addictive substances. They're more likely to do well in school, um, depending on the the sport and circumstance. Um, But the problem is, is that we've sort of rigged this whole sports, youth sports thing now so that um, unless you specialize really early, you can't have any hope of sort of raising, rising up to the elite ranks and, you know, sports specialization is not good for kids, either emotionally or physically. So, and there's this problem that now, you know, for example, I have a, there are certain times when you can start a new sport, like when you first go off to high school, you can start the sports that, you know, people haven't had the opportunity to do before. But I certainly, if my 15 year old wanted to go out and start playing soccer now, there's no place for him to do that. There's no learn how to play sort of, you know, relaxed leagues because no one's there. And, you know, when I talk to parents about, you know, doing, letting their kids to have opportunities to control their own activities and do what's called self-directed executive function to practice that. I say, you know, well, ideally it would be great if your kid could go out and play like some pickup basketball or something, but they're not there. There are no kids out there doing pickup basketball because everyone is so serious about the sports. Um, I think the biggest takeaway for me from doing the sports chapter was, uh, and talking to a lot of really professional athletes and really serious athletes is that great sports parents are the parents that um, are there for the kid and support them no matter what, whether they lose or fail. Parents who do not do any armchair quarterbacking, who don't do any of that sort of second guessing the coach. Second guessing the coach is really one of the more um, detrimental things we do, not just to coaches, but to our kids. Uh Kids need to develop a relationship with their coach and that relationship is really important. And so just as it's bad when you bad mouth um, your ex-spouse in front of your child, like if they're if you're divorced from their kid's father and you badmouth their father, that's a real problem for kids because they love their father and you're bad talking their father. And it's the same with teachers and it's the same with coaches, although not to the same degree. Um, the lesson that I love from the sports chapter was essentially that uh, a coach took a survey of a lot of very um, serious athletes and said, you know, what was your favorite thing about youth sports and what was your least favorite thing about youth sports? And the athletes said that their favorite thing about youth sports, their least favorite thing about youth sports was when um, the ride home with their parents after the game. That's when a lot of the abuse and a lot of the, you know, confusing stuff happened. But their favorite thing about youth sports was when their grandparents came to watch them play. (laughs) And so my best advice to parents is to be a little bit more like a grandparent and be there, um, you know, 
for at least partly for the joy because uh, there's kids don't stick with sports when they're not um, joyful. So, you know, if you want your kid to be a really good athlete, um, they're going to have to love their sport because it doesn't work any other way. Right. And you just mentioned something that I think is important. And I always talk to parents about this in my practice is that car ride, whether it's the car ride to and from school, the car ride to a friend's house or whatever it is. A, a car is a wonderful place to have open conversations with your children yeah. because um, they tend to be more relaxed and you're not facing each other and it's easier. So we have about 30 seconds left. So if mm-hmm. I if I could ask you, what advice would you give to parents? Just like one quick point, what yeah. would you say? Remember that parenting is a long-term thing. It's a it's a long-haul project. It's not something that gets better every single day. Childhood development is not a linear f- slope that gets a tiny bit bigger, higher every single day. It's this, you know, up and down, day-to-day, back and forth, regression and then progress and then regression again. And as long as you're keeping your eye on the long-term picture, it, am I raising a kid who will be better at this next time, then I think you're generally headed in the right direction. Thank you so much for joining us today, Jess. And you about are your, so welcome. And about talking about your perspectives on raising children and giving them opportunities for failure so that they may find their own success in, li- success in life. This is Dr. Vidisha Patel, your host for Perspectives, and I look forward to being back with you next week. See you then. And until then, feel free to email me at drv4kids at yahoo.com with any questions or comments. Have a wonderful week. Until next time. Thank you for listening to our program this week. Another edition of Perspectives with Dr. Vidisha Patel can be heard next Wednesday at 10 a.m. Pacific Time and 1 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. Until we talk again, have a lovely week.